this is Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. Okay, tonight is very interesting. Uh, our topic is, believe it or not, guns. Uh, it seems that doctors are being enlisted in the struggle to remove guns from the hands of citizens. I know uh, a lot of people are concerned about these uh, false flag uh, events or events of so-called violence where, uh, we'll just say criminals, have harmed people or may have harmed people. But, but what if the gun legislation is just a distraction? What if that's not really where the action is? What if your doctor is a tool for gun removal? Think about it. Why even worry about people registering their guns when people can be monitored through their medical records. That's right. Think happens. So we're going to talk about that um, tonight. Of course, we have to say a little disclaimer here. Uh, I'm not a licensed physician, a physician, but not licensed. And anything you might hear is, of course, not medical advice. And should you act upon anything that you hear and anything adverse comes of it, then, of course, I can't offer any type of uh, guarantee or restitution or anything like that. So, you're on your own with your reasoning powers. All right. So this is this comes up again and again and again. And the interesting thing uh, about healthcare and guns, let's just talk about doctors, um, is what we were taught in medical school is basically that nobody should have a gun in the house. Absolutely not. Because there's only really two things a gun can do. One, you can use it to kill yourself. Or two, your child can use it to harm uh, someone else in the household or harm himself. So that's it. There's no upside to having a gun. I have to say that living in the wilderness, in a third world country, my view on guns has changed radically. I do mean radically. I mean, you definitely don't want to be uh, confronted with the varmint and you're unarmed and the varmint is armed with sharp teeth and claws. So, um, you know, my, my whole <clears throat> idea of gun ownership has absolutely changed. But let's just pretend that we're talking about the United States, a so-called civilized uh, place, and uh, see how the things shake up. All right, so guns and health, five pressing questions for healthcare professionals. So your doctor got this in his inbox on June 30th, 2016. That's about, uh, you know, six weeks ago. Um, and of course, they cite the recent attack at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. So again, what we have is a government agency, basically government which licenses doctors, um, using this event as a reason for something. Uh, in which 49 people lost their lives and dozens more sustained serious injuries, was greeted with shock, but also with an unsettling familiarity, like this has happened before. Gun violence has inarguably become, in other words, without argument, any sensible person would say, become firmly entrenched in all corners of this country, gun violence. So towns like Aurora, Newton, Columbine are now shorthand for the collective anguish that follows mass shootings, while large cities like Chicago 
deal with an equally insidious but less media-attended epidemic of deadly firearm violence. Doctors and nurses may be uniquely positioned to have an impact on combating this trend. It's not like butting up the doctors and saying, hey, you know, you guys can help. You're in a unique position, a position that other people don't have. So doctors and nurses uh, may be uniquely positioned to have an impact on combating this trend, involved as they are in the treatment of patients who've been or may become victims of gun violence. Now, everyone either has been a victim of gun violence or may become a victim of gun violence. So it's pretty broad, casting a pretty broad net here. Here's an overview of the most pressing questions for these healthcare professionals. For these healthcare professionals. In other words, these are questions that the government has written for the healthcare professionals. And the question is, what is the availability and impact of guns in the United States? Now, the thing you need to understand is when we talk about gun violence, people who die as a result of guns, 80% of these people who die as a result of guns um, die from suicide. In other words, they use the gun to kill themselves at a, at a time in their life they deem to be appropriate. So this is important to grasp. So the question is, does one person's ownership of a gun put another person in danger? And the answer is clearly no, it does not, because most gun deaths are uh, suicides. All right. So what is the availability impact of guns in the United States? And it says approximately a third of people in the United States own a gun. Yeah, yeah. thank God. Although variations among states are considerable, ranging from as low as 5% in Delaware to as high as 62% in Alaska. And they have a nice little graph for us um, showing that um, gun ownership is actually lowest in the Northeast. So that includes cities like uh, New York City, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. that have a uh, fair amount of violence, gun violence anyway. Uh, Midwest, 35%. West, 34%. And South, 38%. And so we really can't, if you look at that distribution, see any uh, correlation with gun ownership and death. At any rate, in 2013, there were 33,000 firearm deaths, accounting for 70% of homicides and 51% of suicides. So every day in America, 297 people on average are shot and 89 die. So that's about a 30% uh, mortality rate. Among children and teenagers, there are 48 daily shootings and seven deaths. So it appears to be less deadly for teenagers. Although mass shootings with assault rifles routinely spur national discussions about efforts to reduce gun violence, Assault rifles account for only 2% of national gun homicides. Handguns are the most frequent source of firearm deaths. This staggering epidemic is more fittingly attributed to situations like those currently plaguing Chicago, where there are nearly 3,000 shooting victims in 2015 alone. Now, let's just back up. We've got the pot calling the kettle black here. So there's 880,000 deaths a year just from medical intervention. And so we have the... Uh, most uh, deadly uh, people in the world, or in the United States anyway, saying, hey, there were 33,000 firearm deaths in 2013. 
And so we're going to stack that up against 880,000 deaths by medical intervention. All right, but no worries. Let's continue. <laughs> so what does the research tell us about guns and health? Uh, research into gun violence has been substantially restricted in the United States by a 20-year-old provision freezing funding to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for activities that may be used to advocate or promote gun control. The decision is linked to a campaign by the National Rifle Association in relation to a high-profile study in 1993 that concluded the risk for homicide was higher in households in which guns were kept. The AMA recently called for lifting the funding ban. Now, first of all, uh, research is, is research, but obviously biased by who pays for it. So if you have a government that wants gun control and that government is paying for research, then of course the research that the government is paying for uh, will generally be used to support uh, gun control or those policies. However, um, I think that gathering data is a good thing because um, data is always subject to interpretation. And a lot of times the data, once it is gathered and you take a look at it, really does not support uh, different policies. For example, if you gather the data concerning vaccination and childhood illnesses, then the data does not support vaccination, not at all. Especially as we saw in our last show, when the medical industrial complex itself is declaring one vaccine after another ineffective. So if a vaccine is ineffective, then of course the safety profile is irrelevant because there's no reason to give the vaccine. Similarly, if we um, gather information on um, guns um, and what happens with guns and the people who own guns, then that could be uh, a position for policy uh, control or policy formulation. However, as with abortion, the real question is not what should the government do to regulate guns, but what authority does the government have to regulate guns? And this is very important with abortion because if you say the government has the ability to regulate abortion, to say you cannot get an abortion, you can get an abortion, then that presupposes the next level of authority, which is the government has the authority to actually command you to get an abortion. So again, if we apply the same thing to gun control, what we're asking here really is, does the government have the authority to take your tax dollars by automatic weapons for itself with your tax dollars and prohibit you from owning an automatic weapon? So that's just a question, a question to ask. Now, as a child attending a government uh, school, government propaganda school, of course the answer is the individual lacks the wisdom and judgment of any committee or group of experts, and therefore, of course, the government, which hires many experts and has many committees, should have more authority than any individual because, of course, they have more wisdom. And this is the uh, reasoning in a government school. So states with tighter gun regulations experience comparatively fewer injuries and deaths from firearms. So this is comparatively. So we have to understand what comparatively means. So comparatively is a modifier of the word fewer, meaning that states with tighter gun regulations don't experience fewer injuries. It's just comparatively fewer. 
as well as less access by children. Another recent analysis predicted, okay, so it predicted, it didn't observe. So they didn't analyze data, they just made a prediction, like the weatherman might make a prediction. An 80% drop in firearm-related fatalities if all states adopted a strategy of pre-purchased background checks and traceable bullets. Interesting. Proponents of further, and by the way, um, that's in the works, having traceable bullets, uh, manufacturing bullets that are traceable. Proponents for further restrictions often cite the example of Australia, where the government reacted to a 1996 mass shooting by implementing a ban on assault rifles. Increased registration requirements in a large-scale buyback program. Now, I can tell you about a little bit about Australia. Australia, they have kangaroos and various other derivatives of kangaroos. What does that mean? These are big animals. These are animals that can really hurt uh, human beings. So I would say in Australia, it would be a good idea if people were armed so they could protect themselves, at least from these animals. A study in the Journal of the American Medical Association reported a dramatic decline in firearm deaths in the years since 1997. However, there were other confounding events that also took place, and so it could not be determined whether these governmental initiatives were responsible. And so what we have going on here is, when we say gun control, all we're saying is that certain authorized people can have guns. That would be the police, the military, and so on. And so gun ownership then would be a special um, privilege controlled by the government where certain government employees could have guns but uh, other adults could not. And we see how this works in the medical field where killing by medically uh, certified individuals, that would be nurses, doctors, and other uh, hospital personnel, has become exempt from legal oversight and has become legal. And so what we've, we've observed then is this killing has just exploded to affect 880,000 people. So when you take a category of individuals and say, you may cause harm, even death, with impunity, and then for other people you say, well, you know what, if you harm someone, if you cause someone's death, then we're going to prosecute you heavily. So when you have a disparity, what you have is an explosion of killing uh, and maiming on the part of the privileged class. In, in the United States, we can see the medical industrial complex is certainly a privileged class. So with gun control, what we're really saying here is we're going to create a, a privileged class, which is uh, the police, the military, various designated government employees can have access to guns uh, in an unrestricted way, and the deaths that occur are okay. All right, so what have they figured out? So what is the position of professional associations regarding the role of clinicians in gun counseling? This is very, very important. This is where it gets a little squirrely. So healthcare associations support their members taking an active role in gun violence prevention. For more than two decades, that would be 20 years, 
the American Academy of Pediatrics has had an official position statement advocating discussion with parents of the risks of gun access to children. More recently, in 2015, eight major medical societies published a statement in the Annals of Internal Medicine with recommendations to combat gun violence, including their opposition to laws preventing physicians from discussing patients' gun ownership. Now, this is shocking because, of course, uh, everyone worries about children. And whenever a government wants to do something that makes no sense at all, and that may face a lot of objection, you can just always say, hey, let's do it for the children. Hey, it'll help the children. And that's it. But with the, the gun situation, um, the challenge is how is it that, um, that children die? Is gun violence a substantial um, source of death for um, children? And it turns out that swimming pools uh, cause more deaths in children than guns do. Swimming pools. Uh, and this is an extremely high source of death. And yet, we doctors are not... Um, instructed to interrogate parents about pool ownership and caution them about the um, issues of pool ownership. So the, the problem is, yeah, here we have it, drowning. Drowning is the number one cause of accidental death in children ages one to four. Uh, car accidents, number one cause of death in children five uh, to 24, or individuals five to 24. And, you know, gun problems uh, or firearms are pretty far down the list. Uh, so this is really um, interesting. So if you stopped all firearm deaths, you would literally be attacking the eighth leading cause of accidental death in children, ignoring uh, car accidents, house fires, traffic accidents, and drowning. And we see this in children of, of all ages. And so we're gonna, so we have here a a program to remove guns from uh, citizens because of risk to children. And when you look at the cause of death, this is simply um, specious. That's a fancy word for um, nonsense, re nonsensical reasoning. Okay, but these medical societies uh, publish a statement in the Annals of Internal Medicine with recommendations to combat gun violence including their opposition to laws preventing physicians from discussing a patient's gun ownership. Now, when I was practicing medicine, this is 1990, so this is the old ages, the dark ages, doctors were actually um, counseled to ask patients, one, if they own the gun, two, 
how the gun was kept, whether it was loaded or unloaded, and three, where it was kept. And then four, we were actually advised to tell people where they should put guns. And, you know, of course, I had to raise my hand on that one and say, well, where should somebody keep a gun? And you know that the uh, professor giving the lecture did not have any bright ideas. And so I'm saying, well, wait a minute. I don't own a gun. I'm not a gun person. I know nothing about guns. You're going to tell me that I'm going to tell a patient where and how to hide a gun. And you guys don't have any thoughts on that? And so then obviously this whole interrogation process, uh, questions like, do you own a gun? Where do you keep the gun? Is it loaded or unloaded? These questions are simply designed to get the information into the medical record. Since, as a doctor, there was absolutely no instruction given on the obvious, which is, well, where should the person hide the gun? Where's the best way, place to, or the safest place in the house to put a gun? So obviously the whole goal was simply to get the information out. Now, in my case, in my medical practice, this was actually really um, was relevant in the sense that my practice was located in a high-violence, high-gun neighborhood. It was in the middle of the uh, ghetto at the time. And when I opened my practice, there was a tremendous amount of um, drug dealing and gun violence. So it was a pretty hazardous place with a lot of, uh, well, I guess you could say bullets flying. And so I had to ask myself, if I interrogate every person in my practice about their gun ownership, would it reduce the amount of gun violence or gun use? And the answer is, no, it wouldn't. Why? Because unless me asking them that question is going to result in their gun being confiscated, then there's no link, there's no coupling link here to connect me interrogating my patient with maybe fewer guns on the street. And so this is something that really puzzled me. Well, the next thing I thought about was, okay, what, where is the threat to my health here, or, or my, even my personal safety and my medical practice, and the threat to the safety, say, of my um, patients? And so part of what you do as a doctor is you examine people. So maybe you'll lift someone's shirt up to listen to their heart or lungs. And on a couple of occasions, I noticed that there was a gun. Uh, tucked into the person's waistband. And, uh, of course, I, I decided not to mention it. But I will say, the people who had these guns were just the nicest, easiest-going people and did not have a criminal record. And during the course of uh, the 10 years that I was in medical practice, um, there was no uh, record of them either improperly using the guns or... Um, there being any event with the gun use of these two people. So that was very, it was very interesting. So based on my observation, and then the other thing I figured out was I wasn't armed. I was not armed. So if I'm not armed, who should be armed? Answer, my friends, people who come to my office and pay me money and want me to stay in business. Yeah, yeah, they should be armed. So why would I want to disarm my customers who are coming to my office and giving me their money. And so I decided, I made the executive decision, that I wasn't going to ask anyone about any gun ownership, and I wasn't going to document anything in the chart about who did or did not own a gun. But this was just 
me as a family practice, board certified doctor operating in the ghetto. I decided that as far as I was concerned, the people I was aware of who had guns was fine with me because they happened to be my friends. And so this is what they, they're telling doctors. They're telling doctors a Medscape reader poll on the question whether healthcare workers should enter into gun counseling found 47% favoring this approach and 39% opposing it. Previous articles on the topic have garnered a substantial reaction among our readers who, like the general public, hold passionate points of view. Now, one thing that you're really aware of as a medical student and as a doctor in training is you become aware that the government has extended to you special privileges and rights that other people don't have. At the same time, you become aware that the government is making a lot of policies that are not especially kind or beneficial towards patients. And so, or really the general public, but doctors are conned into not thinking of themselves as members of the public. Instead, they think of themselves as a special privileged class on the side of government. And so it's our job as doctors to maintain the status quo, to enforce any and all laws and rules, and to rat our patients out whenever the opportunity arises. And so what I'm saying then is as a doctor, we are conditioned to think, okay, the government it wants this policy, whatever the policy is. Let's think of how we can help the government enforce that policy, create that policy, promote that policy. So at no point is reflection of any kind encouraged, where you say, you know what, this policy does not make any sense, and I don't see how it would be helpful. So that kind of thinking is not encouraged. So another question the government thinks that doctors should consider is, what does the law say about healthcare professionals' role in gun counseling? And so uh, it says, beginning the early part of this decade, several states developed laws that prohibited healthcare professionals from asking patients about guns in their home or officially collecting such information, unless there was an explicit medical need for that information, in other words, a gunshot injury. The most prominent of these laws is Florida's Firearm Owners Privacy Act, which has been opposed by physicians on First Amendment grounds and is currently being contested by the American Bar Association. So doctors are saying they have the right to talk to patients about whatever they want to talk to patients about. And the American Bar Association is also saying, hey, we want doctors to be able to ask these questions. Now, the important part of this, why would the American Bar Association want this information? The answer is because the American Bar Association wants access to the medical records documenting whether or not the person owns a gun. And this can become, uh, of course, this is information that can be used against the patient, certainly not to his benefit. And so we have here the nose of the camel under the tent, and we have here a revelation of what's really going on. Now, if you take a look at just the existence of electronic medical records, it becomes very obvious. You go to your doctor's office, doctor asks you a routine health question, which is, do you own a gun? And you can say yes, or you can say no. 
And let's just say, for sake of discussion, you say yes. So if you say yes, you own a gun. This is electronic medical records, right? So that means these records are electronic. As soon as you leave the office and the doctor pushes the send button, those records can go really anywhere and everywhere, and they can be reconciled with other records like gun registration. So if you say yes, you own a gun, and they don't have a record of a gun registered, then you basically incriminate yourself. You've um, violated the Fifth Amendment unknowingly or waived your, your Fifth Amendment to self-incrimination. So a review article affirmed that these bills have limited impact given the room that physicians have to disclose relevant information about firearms to concerned people and groups such as caregivers and law enforcement. So, uh, in other words, physicians can disclose relevant information, that means your medical records, about firearms, that means answers to any questions you give them, to anyone, like caregivers and law enforcement. I'm not sure what a caregiver is, uh, whether it's your niece or nephew who's helping you out around the house, or what qualifies as a caregiver. This is a pretty loose definition. And so what this tells you then is that whatever you tell your doctor about uh, gun ownership, location, whether it's loaded or not, can and will be shared with others and used against you. And so the doctor interrogating patients about gun ownership is actually a tighter control than gun registration because now it's possible to detect guns that may not be registered. Bills that would put in place more rigorous restrictions on healthcare workers have been introduced in North Carolina and Ohio, but so far have not been approved. So again, uh, what this means then is a doctor becomes a data gathering uh, agent for data mining, especially to your uh, with respect to gun ownership. So it's really important. And when we talk about gun ownership, I think it's important to understand what we're really talking about here is self-defense. And um, again, living in a third world country, um, butchering my own meat. One thing I don't want my animals to have is a right to self-defense. <laughs> I, you know, don't want that. And similarly, uh, you know, when you have a situation where you have a government uh, ruling its citizens, they definitely do not want citizens to have any means of self-defense. So if you have no means of self-defense, then the right to self-defense is pretty much moot. Okay, so the number of gun-related deaths among children and adolescents makes pediatrics a promising field for addressing gun violence. Now, the question I have to ask for any pediatrician is how many gun-related deaths have you seen among children in your practice and how many pool-related deaths have you seen in children? And I can certainly tell you the gun-related deaths, 10 years of medical practice, zero. Um, swimming pool drownings, three. Um, you know, other doctors can go through their memory banks and compare those two numbers. And statistics certainly support my observation, which is that pool, swimming pool drownings are a much higher number. Then you have car accidents, an even higher number. So should we uh, ban people from having cars? So if you have children, should we not allow children to ride in cars as passengers? You know, how far does this go? Uh, to so-called protect people. 
Um, some people have suggested that pediatricians offer in-office counseling on gun storage practices. And of course, obviously, who's going to say what these gun storage practices should be? Answer the government, the government that licenses doctors, and the government that uh, possibly has no right to know this information. And so, of course, they're going to get people to put their guns and store them in certain places. And these are the first places, of course, that the law enforcement is going to look when it goes door-to-door -to, -door to remove guns. So the National Rifle Association offers the Eddie Eagle Gun Safe Program to inform children about gun safety. On the other end of the spectrum, physicians with geriatric patients should note the specific risks posed by gun ownership among those with dementia and advise accordingly to diminish the threat. So we have old folks. Now, one thing that has not been mentioned is that all of these uh, mass shootings, false flag or not, have involved people who are taking psychoactive drugs. And so what should doctors be advising people who are on psychoactive drugs? Or should doctors stop prescribing psychoactive drugs to people who own guns? There you go. But this is not mentioned here. So more controversial is the physician's role in identifying and reporting patients who own guns and suffer from potential mental illness. So the doctor put the patient on the psychiatric drugs and now is going to report the patient as someone on psychiatric drugs who shouldn't own a, drug, a, a gun. So new regulations from the Department of Health and Human Services allow for state agencies responsible for declaring individuals incompetent or ordering them into mental institutions to inform the FBI's gun check system. That's what seemed to be evolving as mass shootings continue to entwine the issues of gun control and mental illness. However imperfect this pairing might be. Now, it might be that, again, the hazard here is prescribing psychiatric medications to a gun owner. It might be that these gun owners might be reasonable, uh, safe people if they were not taking psychiatric medications. And so you can see here what they say is, oh, give the psychiatric medications to the gun owner, but then report, report the gun owner to the government. And so what's happened here is the physician has literally become an informal backdoor to reporting gun ownership. And the doctor has absolutely no control over who sees your medical records. Since there's been the HIPAA Act, the Health Insurance uh, Privacy and Portability Act, which allows anyone to see your medical records who poses as an individual that might be responsible for payment of your medical bills without any further disclosure on your part and without your knowledge, then this means that um, medical records are basically insecure. And so when you reveal this information to your doctor and your doctor puts it in medical, you know, in electronic format, just electronic health records, then basically this information can be accessed, can be cross-referenced by pretty much any government agency that wants to. So... Um, what happens then 
is that or what is now happening is more than ever your doctor is um, an agent of the government and is reporting on you and this is guns but um, you know it could be a whole list of any other things and so now when you give information to your doctor you need to realize that you are potentially talking to um, a, a government agent, a government prosecutor and anything you say to your doctor can and most likely will be used against you. This is a really um, shocking state of affairs. And the worst part of it is if your doctor uses electronic medical records, then he has absolutely no control over this. This is just simply something that is built into the system that violates your uh, right to privacy under the Fourth Amendment, the right to be secure in your personal effects and your papers. It's a Fourth Amendment violation. Fifth Amendment violation um, is your right to not incriminate yourself. And so when you go to a doctor, you're basically waiving your Fourth Amendment, uh, Fifth Amendment rights, and now possibly even your Second Amendment right, in other words, right to own a gun. So the, the doctor is serving a very, <laughs> a very um, central position in nullifying your um, ability to protect your privacy as an individual and to protect, I won't say your constitutional rights because I'm not sure that they exist, but to protect your ability to function as uh, an independent, um, self-directed human being. So what's the answer? What is the answer? There's a few options. First option is don't show up. Do not go to the doctor. And um, this is, this is a, an option that's, just, that's, that's um, looking better and better all the time. Um, when you consider that the doctor is the entryway to a system that kills 880,000 Americans every year, then not um, going is a pretty good, um, pretty good choice. And now you add that going to the doctor creates a record that can and will be used against you uh, in a court of law in the future and to restrict your um, choices and your mobility, then not showing up is, is a huge option. Well, the next question then is, well, if you don't show up, what do you do when you get sick? How do you handle it? I'm going to be doing a webinar, and if you want to know more about it, you've got to sign up to my list so I can, you can get the notification. And you can go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash remedies and get your copy of Remedies so powerful they could make antibiotics obsolete, and then that will automatically sign you up to my list, and then you can get your notifications of webinars telling you how you can be medically independent, how you can handle your medical situations at home and the privacy of your own home without having to go to a doctor and talking to a government agent and compromising your future. So that's one thing uh, to do. The next thing to do is should you decide you want to go to a doctor, 
realize that you are talking to a government agent. Realize that anything you say can and will be used against you. Not only in a court of law, but in the medical theater. I mean, if 880,000 people are being killed every year at the hands of their doctors, then clearly whatever information you're giving the doctor is being used against them. It's being used as a basis for prescribing um, deadly therapy, deadly interventions. So should you show up? The answer is no. But if you decide you want to, then realize that you are talking to a government agent. Realize that what you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. Not only that, but what you say can and is being used against you in terms of medical therapy. So doctors are using what you say and do to prescribe things like proton pump inhibitors that um, cause cancer and cause um, osteoporosis and cause Alzheimer's. And they're using what you say against you to prescribe cardiac medications that can um, accelerate Alzheimer's or even accelerate heart disease and damage. So when you enter the doctor's office, everything you say can, will, and is being used against you. And whether you're in favor of gun control or against gun control, this is just one more example of the physician betraying the interests of the patient, of the physician working for the government, not for the patient. And again, um, what we have in all these uh, mass shootings, whether you believe they're false flag or not, is we have people who were not law-abiding citizens. And so, of course, any gun control that you pass is not going to affect them because they're not obeying the law. And so the way to handle people who don't obey the law is not to pass more laws because they don't obey the law in the first place. So the whole thing is actually nonsensical. So if you want to reduce the amount of homicides, passing gun control doesn't make any sense, especially when the people you're trying to target um, do not obey the law. Okay, so we have 15 minutes left, and it is time for questions. There's lots of uh, questions in the chat room, or at least comments. Okay. <sighs> Dr. Daniels, do you think that mental illness is a disease of people's brains, or do you think people have been put under so much stress that they don't see other options? Well, mental illness, in my experience, um, is definitely correlating with people's perceptions that they don't have other options. Um, when people don't have options, and they feel they only have maybe one or two options. And of course, each option is absolutely atrocious. And they feel compelled to pick one. Then that causes tremendous uh, mental and emotional stress. Unfortunately, in our um, culture, people are conditioned to accept multiple choice type thinking. That means if there's a question, then you look at the options offered and no further. And that's a multiple choice test. So when you have a multiple choice test, you don't write in choice number six, which is 
what you think it should be. That's like, no, no, no. And so a lot of closed um, thinking comes up. And we see this in the case of self-education, um, self-employment, self-healing, um, or any kind of um, self-directed activity. But I think if people would seek out more self-directed activity, self-education, self-employment, self-healing, they would find that a lot of their mental stress could be easily uh, relieved. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, what makes a government agent? How can we tell if we are talking to a government agent? Okay, that's a very, uh, very good question. So if the person you're talking to is certified or licensed by the government, that makes them a government agent. In other words, they have to abide by rules the government gives them. These are people like, for example, accountants, uh, lawyers, doctors. Um, and recently, this has also become true of religious leaders. And this um, I was aware of as far back as oh, early 2000s. So when the, when the government started giving grants to churches, um, that's when the churches um, started changing their message from the pulpit to coordinate with government goals and objectives. And I realized that the fix was in when I went from uh, an African-American church in the ghetto on a Sunday and um, went to about, listened to about half an hour of the sermon and then zipped across town to a white suburban church, only to find that the religious leader at both churches was preaching the same sermon. Like, wait a minute, how this happened? So, uh, there are a lot of government agents that surround you. And it does help um, to know who these uh, government agents are. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, I heard an actress, again, okay, this is an actress, so someone who's acting, say that HIV AIDS is the number one killer of adolescents in Africa and the number two killer of adolescents worldwide. In your opinion, what is killing all those kids, especially in the third and first world these days, and why? I know it's not AIDS. Okay, so what we go to, I like to go to, is the CDC. And the thing to understand uh, in terms of cause of death is that death happens. So let's just, let's look, let's understand that, that death happens. And so if we take a look at the leading cause of death by um, age group, the second leading cause of death, uh, let's just talk about teenagers. So teenagers are 14 to 15. We're just going to take a look here. So what kills kids is harmless cancers. How do you die from harmless cancers? <laughs> I guess we have to get therapy for that. So if we add harmless cancers plus influenza, plus stroke, 
plus chronic low respiratory disease called asthma. So if we add all of these things up and just reclassify them as AIDS, then that would make AIDS the number one or number two um, killer. So for teenagers in the United States, the number one cause of death is accidental injury. Number two cause of death for teenagers is suicide. Number three cause of death is homicide. But once you get past that, every single cause of death can be changed to be called AIDS. So malignant cancers, number four, that uh, definitely can be recalled, uh, relabeled as AIDS. Heart disease, that can be relabeled as AIDS. Influenza, AIDS. Diabetes mellitus, usually they die of, um, they're classified as heart attack, uh, even though many times their their um, cause of death is actually um, overdose of their insulin. And chronic low respiratory disease and stroke. So all of these things can be reclassified as AIDS. And if you look at the leading cause of death in the, once you leave the teenage group, uh, we see AIDS in the number eight position for the 25 to 34. And that's only 583 deaths a year. This is not very big. But um, this is a group, the teenage, teenagers, have very, very low death rates and very low death numbers. And so and we look at the people who are um, 55, the number one cause of death kills 115,000. The number one cause of death for um, teenagers doesn't even kill 30,000. Uh, actually, doesn't even kill 12,000 people. So what you do when you make these sensational statements is you pick a group that has a very low death rate as it is, and that is a very low death rate in the teenage group. And then you pick something like uh, AIDS, for example, and so even though it's not killing very many people, because you picked this very uh, low-risk group, then you can move it up easily to the number one or number two slot just by renaming or relabeling. And that's what we have going on with the Zika epidemic. As people who have yellow fever are just being, or have had it in the past, are being relabeled as Zika cases. And so once you just start relabeling these diseases, boom, you can create an epidemic in a blink. I mean, a blink. So, uh, let us see. Okay, so what's killing people is the same thing. It's always been killing them. They're just relabeling it as AIDS. Number one, world control. <laughs> okay. Question. Uh, so what's the question? Dr. Down, super great show today as usual. All right, well, you're welcome. Thank you. Okay, my daughter had her first OBGYN visit today for her high-risk pregnancy and prenatal care. Okay, that's nice. She used to do a 12-hour fast. Now, that is so stressful for a pregnant lady. No pregnant lady should fast for 12 hours. In fact, for a healthy pregnancy, you get up in the middle of the night and eat. So you eat at bedtime, get up in the middle of the night to eat, uh, eat all the time. But anyway, so the doctor wants her to fast for 12 hours. That should throw that poor baby into distress. Then take a urine sample to determine if she's got preeclampsia or might develop it in the future. And so 
what's going on, what should happen here is she should, of course, refuse this test because it's just too stressful for her baby. And if she does have a high-risk pregnancy, this is just going to make it more so. I mean, this is like the pre-crime division. And so, it, obviously, this test, whatever it is, is just going to show if she's at high risk for preeclampsia, and it's not going to show if she will or will not get it. Okay, so she's three and a half months long, which puts her just at the beginning of the second trimester. Is this a potentially useful test? No. Okay. Uh, look at this. She's still on low-dose blood pressure medication. That's unfortunate. So um, most women during their pregnancy, um, if they drink enough water and eat food, their blood pressure will drop tremendously during their pressure during their pregnancy because you've got to create a low-pressure system in order to get enough blood to the baby. Okay. Okay. So her blood pressure is under control. All right. But anyway, so the test is not useful. As with most prenatal tests, the tests are not useful. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, how do you recommend people um, safeguard their minds and keep them from freaking out when they get mind-blowing information. Um, I think the best way to do that is when you receive information that is just so out there, so totally different from what you thought was true, even though you kind of sense that what you thought was true didn't really make a lot of sense, then you should put it on the shelf and say, you know, I need to look into this. But I only look into this. I need to say, okay, if this is true, how does it affect my life? If this is true, what do I do differently? And if the answer is um, something very simple, like in this case, to stop seeing doctors, um, or limit the information you give to doctors, then it's like, okay, done, easy. So the thing to look at is what is the implication of this information? If you believe this information is true, then what does it mean you need to do for your life? And a lot of times, this shocking information or mind-blowing information actually simplifies your life. Um, so what I say, and I try and do it every day in my own life, is really embrace this information and try to understand, okay, what is this information? What does it mean for my life? All right, now that I have this information, what can I change? What do I want to change? And what would, how, what would that, uh, what effect would that have? Yeah. <laughs> okay so Dr. Daniels a lot of what you're saying is, is pretty uh, outrageous it might appear crazy to people who haven't been listening to you for several years like I have what do you recommend for people so they don't feel like what you're saying is tinfoil hat propaganda okay I would recommend that anything I say, these oh, can't be true, can't be true. You've got, you've got Dr. Google. You know, Google it. Hey, look at the 10 leading causes of death by age group, United States. I'll even give you the link right here in the chat room. By the way, the chat room is healingwithdrdaniels.tuchango.com. 
So, and this is data published by CDC. And this is why I only use data published by the government or by the CDC or the FDA or whoever. Because this stuff is so shocking, so outrageous. I mean, it can make you just take ill and go to bed just, just realizing this stuff is the case. Um, that only by using government um, sources of information can people begin to even get a grip on this. You know, if I was quoting, you know, natural healing websites or alternative this or alternative that, then you just meh, psh, dismiss it. But when you're quoting CDC, .gov websites, that's where all this stuff comes from. When you're quoting... Um, 90 seconds. You know, what doctors are actually getting in their inbox. I mean, this is what your doctor's being told. Your doctor's being told, don't worry, ask everyone about their guns, and you can share the information with everybody. Like, you know, the police, the government, caretakers, anybody. And so, um, this, you know, you have to start with your feet on the ground and keep it there. You know, start with regular um, 60 seconds that have high credibility. <laughs> My mom's recently had knee replacement surgery. The wound is not healing due to poor circulation. All right, so let's be serious. The wound is not healing due to the reason she got the surgery, which is that the knee didn't have circulation, which is why the knee was not doing well. So she could have restored her circulation to the knee and not need the replacement. Uh, it's difficult to understand what to recommend for her circulation. Um, she is pre-diabetic, which is actually irrelevant because she's not diabetic. But you know, she can start with something simple like turmeric and uh, cayenne pepper to improve her circulation. Probably the best bet for her would be a discovery session, vitalitycapsules.com, um, and then click on discovery session at the top. But 10 seconds. I guess that brings us to the end of our show. So look forward to your webinar to help you with your medical independence. This is Dr. Daniels, and as always, think happens. <laughs>